Good morning. Will said it's good to be together today. We're glad to have each of you here. Have a really good number of visitors here today. We're certainly glad that you're here and invite you back anytime that you have the opportunity to worship with us. I've given a little thought over the last couple years to the, the idea of competition in our society, and I, I don't know if that's driven from the fact that you got kiddos that are starting to play competitive sports and that type of thing, but it's kind of been on my mind, especially in relation to what we talk about living life as Christians, and so it's kind of where I want to spend some time this morning. You know, it's, it's such an emotional thing for us, competition. It's, it's really everywhere in our society, sports in particular. Um, it's close to many of us. Many people in here are still avid sports fans, but really everywhere we see it in business, social dealings, political circles, everywhere in our life, competition is such a driving force in our lives, and so like I said, it's kind of been on my mind and started doing some studying on it and thinking about those things. And um, I want to kind of just view competition in light of the scriptures this morning and kind of have a desire to hopefully help us rewire our brains a little bit on how we think about competition in the worldly sense and think about it in light of what the scriptures have to say. And I hope that uh, it'll be a beneficial study to each of you here this morning. It certainly has been to me. And um, give us some areas we can maybe improve in our life. Sports, uh, in particular, to me growing up, was something that was very important. I wanted to play every sport I could. I wanted to be good at every sport that I played. I wanted to excel in those things. I wanted to be the best. I wanted to win. I wanted my team to win. And I think um, that's something in life that as I grew older and started to do other things in life, like get jobs and things like that, I, w- I wanted the same things in that environment. I wanted to be the best that I could be at my job. I wanted to succeed. I wanted to strive for promotions. I wanted to be able to be in positions to make a difference in the workplace and things like that. And I think as we look at those things, there's attributes in competition that are good, in worldly competition that can be good, um, things that we can learn and the things that we develop in attitudes and behaviors, but there's certainly some negative aspects of some of that too. And that's some of the the things I want to talk about this morning. As I get older, I kind of just wonder about all those things, and I think a lot of that, as I said, has been driven by um, competitive sports and things like that. You see the way that um, children's sports are run these days, and it's frustrating. We, Wrigley's playing baseball right now, and we're missing two games today because they schedule games on a Sunday when we have church. And it's a very frustrating environment uh, to see your kids playing, but it's also frustrating to look and see the behavior of parents and coaches and people's attitudes toward those things and the hostility that it breeds. And, you know, they learn a a great many good things from sports, you know, working hard and, and helping others out and relying on others and how to be a good teammate and how to deal with difficult situations, how to deal with stress and trials and overcoming struggles and things like that. There's a lot of great things that that we learn from sports and competitiveness in general, even in the business world. But the the frustration and all that kind of thing has really kind of put a microscope on it, at least for me and why I'm so interested in studying. And so that's kind of where the thoughts of the morning come come from today. And I hope that uh, you'll be benefited as we study this this morning. I've titled the lesson, Succeeding in All the Wrong Things, and a kind of a subtitle, The Fallacy of Competition. And I know that those of you who know me think that's an awful big word for me, but I couldn't find a word that described it better than how I feel about it. And that word fallacy, all it means is it's a mistaken belief. And I think that's what competition is in our society, as we have developed this 
mistaken belief on how important competition is and how important it should be. And I hope to at least try to describe my thoughts behind that to you this morning. You know, we're really emotional about it, about competition in all, all of these settings. And it's something that's, you know, as equally fascinating as it is frustrating. But I think back to some of the times in my life when you think you might be the most emotional about things, you know, at my wedding, I wasn't super emotional about that in a, from a standpoint of crying or anything like that. The birth of my kids, I didn't cry at the birth of any of my kids. It was obviously a happy time and something I was glad about, but I didn't even come close to shedding a tear at those times. You know, there's other t- times in life where I have, but many times in uh, those things that no- people would normally associate crying or shedding a tears or being really emotional with that, that just weren't a big deal to me. Then in 2016... The Cubs won the World Series. And that might not mean anything to many of you, but it was a big deal to me. It's something that was 108 years in the making. They hadn't done it in over a century. There's people that had lived their entire lives as Cub fans and never saw them win the World Series. And I got pretty darn close to crying when that happened. And Tara probably would tell you that there were tears in the eyes. I don't know. It was really emotional for me. And this was seven years ago at a time where I probably was the least competitive I've been in terms of sports in my entire life. I'd kind of already started gathering this attitude. Bentley had already started in some of the sports and things like that, and I was already feeling those frustrations and already kind of getting sick of it and sick of seeing how people behave. So I wasn't even that competitive. But this was a big deal to me. We're so emotional about those things, and why is that? And I'm I hope we can kind of dig in this morning and, and really figure it is what it, what it is about competition. As I said, there's many things that are positive about it. It teaches a lot of good things. But I think there's many negative things that, that competition breeds as well, such as greed and envy and covetousness and hostility, like I talked about. The, the attitudes people develop because of this stuff, it's just toxic. And so I want to look at the scriptures this morning and really figure out, believe it or not, the scriptures use sports as a metaphor in many, many places. I know you all are already thinking of some of the verses we're going to talk about this morning. There's many more verses than what you're thinking of. And it's, I really didn't even realize that until I started digging in on this a little bit. It's like, man, you can literally start cherry-picking verses on this topic and, and just go find verses where the, some kind of competition metaphor is used in whatever is being taught. There's a bunch of them. And we're certainly going to touch on some of those this morning. The scriptures, are, the scriptures use them, and uh, we're going to look at how the scriptures use them and what context the scriptures use them to try to help us have a better understanding, as I said, kind of reframe our thinking and shift our mindset on, on how competition is used in our lives. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, and verse number 24, Paul says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. And I've heard many sermons in my life, people using this running the race idea as a topic for a sermon. And there's a reason why. A, because as I said, it's used in a lot of places. But B, because it is such a good metaphor for something that we all understand. We all understand this competition stuff. We all see sports and we all see business and politics and social competition. We all understand what it means, and so it's a really good metaphor for understanding some of the things that, that are taught in the Scriptures. And if you start doing any research on this, this is the verse that pops up the most, I think. He says, run the race. And not only run it, but run it so that you can 
obtain the prize. So from the onset, we're encouraged to compete. We're encouraged to have a competitive mindset and not only be competitive, that we should want to win. You know, we live in a society, I heard a guy talking about this on a podcast just the other day, this whole uh, everybody gets a medal society that we live in. You know, everybody... The kids all compete. They don't even call it winners and losers sometimes now. Everybody gets a medal at the end of it, and this guy was just super frustrated with that whole deal. That's not what he says here. He said, you run it, and you try to win it. Now, I don't want to take this out of context. We're going to dig into that, but I want to talk about that today on what it means to run that race, what it means to try to win the prize. What is the prize? What is the ultimate prize here that we're talking about today? And I think if we're encouraged to compete and to obtain the prize, that we should really understand what that is, shouldn't we? And that's an important question. What does winning mean? What does winning mean to you today in light of Christianity or in the context of Christianity? Some of you may say, well, it means, you know, we get up every day and we have a good day. We don't commit a lot of sins that we know about. We're making, a, making the right kind of effort to live as God would have us to live. We're treating people the way we should. We're interacting the right way. At the end of the day, what does it mean you win? What, are you, what in your mind is obtaining the prize? And it's a little bit of a loaded question, I suppose. And it's something that essentially I'm going to oversimplify to say, at the end of the day, winning means you go to heaven. And at the end of the day, the prize is heaven. And if our eyes are on any other prize, then we're not focused properly. And I think that's exactly what he says here when he says that you run the race and obtain the prize. He wants you to go to heaven. He goes on in the next verse to say, Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. It's pretty cut and dry, isn't it? You know, I think about something like the Olympics and the men and women that compete in the Olympics. You know, they spend all that time training and do all this stuff and prepare, and they go compete, and they may be happy with a bronze medal. You know, they award first, second, and third at the Olympics, and they stand them on a podium, and they play the national anthem of whoever wins it, and they hang, a, they hang a medal on the neck of first, second, third. The prize we're talking about, there's no steps to it. There's no bronze medal. There's no silver medal. You either obtain the prize or you don't obtain the prize. And as we think about competition, it's really that cut and dry. It's really a black and white thing. You either go to heaven or you don't go to heaven. And so you got to compete to obtain the prize. And I think he kind of calls out worldly competition a little bit here. I don't know if it's kind of a backhanded comment or, or what, but, I mean, he just flat out calls it, calls it perishable, uh, perishable things that, that athletes compete for. Those are perishable things. He calls it a wreath here. You, think, you look back at uh, the original Olympics and those kind of competitions. That was the prize. You know, they, they handed out wreaths if you won those things. I think about some of the extraordinary athletes that I've seen in my lifetime or heard about or, you know, witnessed that kind of thing. I, for some reason, when I think about these scriptures that talk about running the race and all that kind of stuff, I think more about the Olympics than I do traditional sports. I don't know why that is, but maybe it's because of the actual racing itself. But I, I remember watching Michael Phelps in the Olympics over, you know, the course of a decade and a half the last 20 years or whatever. And this is a guy that, you know, from the very time he could remember was, was in a swimming pool. 
training and swimming and being coached and starting to work toward all of these goals in the Olympics. And they, talk, they did a story on him one time and showed his, you know, his training routine and all that kind of things, and he'll go swim in the morning, and then he's eating like a 4,000-calorie lunch of pasta because he's burning so many calories, and then it's training in the afternoon, and then it's more diet and then weight training, and then back in the pool. and all. You, you see any of these Olympians, and they devote so much of their life to this. For what? It's for a perishable wreath. Michael Phelps is, I don't know, I didn't look it up. I don't know how old Michael Phelps is now. Is he 30 or 35? I don't know. Time goes by fast. That's been a while. 25 years of his life maybe were spent completely devoted to swimming, competitive swimming. Nothing else on his mind. Nothing else. It was a singular focus. You don't get to where he got without it being that way. And what is it now? It's a memory. Now he was a great swimmer. And some people strive for that legacy. I think that's a thing that drives a lot of people. They want to be known for that. They want to be remembered for that. But now you see, if you see Michael Phelps, what is, what is he doing now? I saw him on the Golf Channel the other day of all, all things. He's on the Golf Channel, you know, uh, doing a testimonial for some swing trainer. I don't even know what it was, some training video or something. Well, Michael Phelps endorses it. I, I can probably be a better golfer. If one of the best swimmers of all time says it's good, then I can probably be better. It's mind-boggling for a perishable wreath. They hung a hunk of gold around his neck 15 times or whatever it was. It was a bunch. He won a bunch. But it was a silly-looking round piece of metal that if you think about it, it's weird-looking, hanging on his neck. He said, we strive for something that's imperishable. The goal is heaven. There's no other prize. The goal is heaven. And I hope as we think about competition that that's in the forefront of our minds we play sports in our house, as I said. I want my kids to do good at sports. I want them to be good. We go out and practice. They go to practice. We've paid for lessons before to try to get better. If they're interested in something, we'll try it. Boston likes robotics and that. We try to do robotics. Comp- you know, whatever they're interested in, we try to do it. I want them to be good at that. I want them to do good in school. I want them to have good grades. I want them to succeed in their careers. I want them to do good at all these things. But if they do good in all these things, if they win the gold medal in the Olympics or they grow up to be on the Forbes top 100 list of successful people or if they grow up to be president of the United States and they don't go to heaven, we have failed. We have succeeded at all the wrong things. And our idea of competition is distorted. It's in the wrong place. So what's the motive then? What's the motive for running the race? Well, Paul spent a good chunk of this chapter in 1 Corinthians 9 talking about um, the freedoms he had under Christ. It's a a discussion on the freedoms of being under Christ versus what the law promised. And in verse number 19, he says, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I may win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people. Why? That by all means, I might save some, and I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings." The verse right after this is the verse we read this morning. 
to run the race, to compete, to win the prize. Why? For the sake of the gospel. That's the motive. That was Paul's motive. That should be our motive as well. The motive for the race is the gospel. And he said it was important enough that he changed his relationships with people. He made relationships with people, and he bonded with people, and he worked on those relationships all for that very reason. That was the whole point of the race was to spread the gospel. And so he encouraged them to compete. He he encouraged them to seek after the prize. And it's interesting to me in a society that we live in that encourages you to take care of yourself, that encourages you to trample on others if you have to to get where you're going, he's teaching the exact opposite. He's saying relationships and taking care of others is exactly the way toward that. And we get our, kind of get our first glimpse here in the difference in worldly competition and what we're talking about this morning, you know, treating other people as part of that. The world's driven by so many other motives, greed and covetousness, and all the things people seek and strive after that drives them to have that competitive nature. And Paul said he did everything for the gospel. And I think that's a key difference in the view of a Christian is in how we view others. In, in his letter to the Philippians, that we're going to spend a little bit here in chapter 2, here he says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. Is this how the world would encourage us to behave? I would argue that it wouldn't. Thinking about others first, put it, putting others first, esteeming others better than yourself, looking to the interest of others, that's not what the world says. The world says you beat them. You need to be the best. Go outwork them so that you can be better than them. Spend more time doing it so that you can be better than them. Don't lift others up. Maybe your team, right? People, people do a good job with that, teammates. But even at that, you see it on a team. I mean, we've been around organized team sports on a very small scale in Canyon, Texas. This is not anything remotely national or anything that's superstar. This is Canyon, Texas, an average high school town, and even amongst our own team, you see the selfish desires and the behaviors. You see people that all they care about themselves. All they care about is them winning. We've seen Bentley play golf the last couple of years. You see it there especially. It's an individual sport. There's no way you can make a pass to. There's people on the team that couldn't care less how the other girls do as long as they shoot in the 70s. It's everywhere. And that's not what he said. That's not how he said to, to treat people. This is kind of a a classic what-would-Jesus-do scripture, right? How do you treat others? That's exactly what he said. Have the mind in you that was also in Christ Jesus. He didn't think of himself too highly that he was caring more about himself than he cared about any of us. Instead, he was obedient even to the death of the cross because he cared more about you and me than he did himself. That's not worldly competition. That's a love that the world doesn't know and the motive for running the race. So if the motive is the gospel, at the end of the day, what's the competition? Who are we competing with? A couple verses later in Philippians 2 here. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, 
So now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. This, uh, this passage has always kind of struck me with some gravity for some reason. The statement, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. It's kind of a lonely statement, isn't it, if you think about it? It's a statement that, that squarely places a burden on your own shoulders, on the reader's shoulders. The scriptures are talking to each of you individually. You work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. I would argue this morning that the competition in the race of life is yourself. You know, as you think about your own sin problem at some point, I've said this before, but you come to a realization at some point in time that nobody can help you with your sin problem. And it's a lonely feeling. And obviously, that's the need for Jesus. Bentley turned 18 this year in February, and a couple months ago, we were having a discussion about something. She came in to ask my opinion, my advice on something. She was kind of a little torn about a situation on what she should do, making a decision on what she should do. And it was kind of the first time I've, I've played the year 18 card on her, but I said, hey, you got to make your own decision. You're 18 now. You know, I can't, I can't make every decision for you from here on out. I think at the end of the day, she, you know, it's, it's pretty standard human psychology. She's looking for dad to give an opinion. Then if it's not what she likes, she can blame dad. Not that she would do that, but, but if it's, you know, either way, she has an out, right? She can make it, a, she can make a, give an excuse to friends for not doing something or have an excuse the other way. And I just said, look, you got to make your own decision. The truth is, at some point in time, she's got to make her own decisions, and that's part of life, and it's just part of growing up. It's what, that's the way we do. But you have to work out your own salvation. As much as I want to, I can't do anything, anything, to get my kids to heaven. Now, I can be a good example, and I'm going to encourage them every step of the way, but at the end of the day, it's on their shoulders if they go to heaven or not. And I want to build a good support group around them. That's why I'm here with all of you today, and I want good examples in their lives, and I want people that they can talk to and lean on. But at the end of the day, it is on their shoulders, and the real competition is with yourself in the race of life. And there's no matter how much I want to do it, I can't compete in that for him. At the end of the day, the competition stares back at us in the mirror. And I think that's what Paul's teaching here. The competition is with yourself. Worry about yourself. Don't worry about others. Worry about yourself. Get things, life in, get things right in your life. Compete with yourself. There's plenty, each of you know, there's plenty going on in our own lives to worry about somebody else's life. It's hard enough for me to get my own act together to worry about someone else. Listen how Solomon describes this in Ecclesiastes chapter 4. As he's going through his whole kind of list of all the things that he figured out through his living that became, became vanity, he says, Then I saw that all toil and all skill in work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This is also vanity and striving after when the fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two handfuls of two hands full of tool and striving after wind. I've never picked up on that for some reason that he where he says all the tool and skill that a man works for comes from envious neighbor. Have you ever thought about that? Why do people get so caught up in business that they want to work all the time? 
you know, of course, greed is a component of that too. But at the end of the day, we look around and we see something that somebody else has that we don't have. And we want that for ourselves. And he said, it's all foolishness. All this stuff, people, all the skills people develop and they go learn all these things and develop these lifelong skills and all that. It's all just out of envy so they can go have what their neighbor has. It's such a fascinating thing. What if we were able to kind of live our lives in a little bit of a vacuum? What if we could put a bubble around our lives and say, okay, the idea of covetousness does not exist. For this period of time, there's no neighbor to look at and say, I want his boat or I wish my house was as big as his or you know, my kids were as good at sports as his or whatever, whatever it is. If we could put that vacuum on our eyes and it wasn't physically possible to covet something else, what would we live for? What would you spend your days thinking about and doing? Why would you get up and go to work every day? Would you try to work more? What would be the incentive to work more? What would be the incentive to earn more money? It seems like foolishness in a vacuum. Maybe we would spend more time focusing on spiritual things. And I think that's what he understood. He understood that the foolishness in these things that we, that we spend so much time and focus competing for and driving after. I suppose there would be a lot more contentment with the things I have already. My station in life, if all I was worrying about was food and clothing and raising my family, I suppose we would all be a lot more content in that. There was a time where some men, men were fussing about this in front of Jesus. You might remember the story in Luke chapter 9. It says, An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, Whosoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is greatest. Doesn't this seem like such a silly argument, especially looking back on it? I mean, can you imagine if Jesus was sitting here with us today and I said, Lord, am I better or is Jessica better? Who's really be Who's the more important member of your church? That seems so foolish to us, doesn't it? But that's a worldly thinking. And that's the way that exactly how they were thinking here. It said Jesus knew their hearts. He grabbed a little kid and brought him over here and said, look, whoever receives this, whoever receives this kid is the greatest. Do the things you're supposed to do. Do the things I've told you to do. That's who's the greatest. But it's all got to be a competition. Who's better? Who's first to heaven? I, don't, I mean, is there, is there a gold medal? I get to heaven with a gold medal, but Trevor only gets the silver medal? That's not the way I read about it. I want Trevor to go to heaven. I want to go to heaven. I want you to go to heaven. The prize is heaven. Who are we competing with? We're competing with ourselves. And really, if you think about competition in the general sense, you mentioned Michael Phelps and those Olympians, those kind of people. What is his whole life, how long did he compete in his life? What was his longest swim? Was he out there a minute? I don't know. I don't, I'm not a swimmer. I don't know the answer to that. Maybe a minute. The longest actual swimming race he ever did was maybe a minute. There's longer swimming races. He wasn't out there that long. So he spent 25. It'd be curious to know what his total amount of actual competition time in his life was. Did he compete for Five hours of actual competition time. So he trained for 25 years of his life for five hours. 
It's mind-boggling. These people are thinking worldly, but, but training was part of it for sure. Now think about understanding what the race is. We talked about understanding the prize, what the prize is. It's cut and dry. We want to go to heaven. So what does that look like? What kind of race is it? You know, there's different kind of races. There's sprints, there's long-distance running, different kind of competitions. Some of them require very different kinds of training. And so I think that's important to call out what kind of race we're talking about here. You might remember Hebrews chapter 11, the great faith chapter, where he's listing that you know, that whole list of people and the things that they went through to illustrate the idea of faith and what it meant to have a, a, to have a faith that stood the test of time. Well, he goes into chapter 12. Sometimes we stop on those chapter marks. He goes into chapter 12, says, look, here was that list of all those people and I, all this thing that I said to you that they did. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The race is an endurance race. It's not a sprint. You watch these, uh, like, 100-meter dash. It's like the fastest guy in the world. The, the, the time separating the fastest guy in the world and me is three seconds. I don't know what I can run it in. They run it in nine. I can probably do 15. Six seconds between the very best ever and me, it's mind-boggling. But then you take him and you got a long-distance guy, and the way that they train, the way they prepare, it's completely different. He says this is an endurance race. you got to run it with endurance. And that's what the Christian life is, is it's a race of endurance. I ran cross-country in high school, um, out of necessity more than out of choice. If you wanted to be on the basketball team, you had to run cross country. And I wanted to play basketball, so I ran cross country. And I wasn't a good runner. I was an okay athlete, but I wasn't a good runner. I wasn't fast and didn't particularly enjoy running. But we would do a practice. Um, Coach would take us out to the Hemphill Wheeler County line. And there's a county co-op that sits on Highway 83. And he would kick us out right there on the corner of Highway 83 and the county line and say, I'll meet y'all at that other end. And it's straight as an arrow, seven, I don't remember how long it is, seven or eight miles. It felt like it was 20, looking down that, and it seemed dawning. And it had big hills, and it was a dirt road that had big chunks of rock on it, and he met us at the end. And we had to run seven, eight miles up and down those hills and avoid the big rocks and all the stuff that comes with long-distance running. And there were times, there were parts of it were miserable. There were times you stumbled. There were times you didn't think you were going to get up the hill. There were times you thought there was something in the road that was causing too much problems. And that's kind of the way life is. And I think that's why he calls it an endurance race. Sometimes there's hills, the hills of life don't feel like you can get up them, but you just got to endure. And you got to look at these people of faith to help you with that. And because it's a race of endurance, it requires us to compete in a different way. Back in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, our chapter, I'm going to read this verse again because it kind of has the context of, of all the verses around it. But he says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable reed, but we an imperishable. 
So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control. Lest after preaching to others, I myself should be qualified. I think at the end of the day, the sport is really discipline. And that's what he says here. That's, this is how I run the race. I bring my body into subjection. The athletes exercise self-control in all the things that they're doing. He even said, I, look, I don't run aimlessly. I'm not just sitting out and goofing off, or I don't box, I don't box the air. That's, that gives you a good visual, right? It's, there, there's some purpose behind it. There's some purpose behind how you're training. There's some purpose behind how you're living, the way you're doing it. There's a, did a, I don't know, seven or eight years ago, I did an exercise program called P90X. Some of you might be old enough to remember that, but there's a guy named Tony Horton that's a big fitness guy, and he's been around for a lot of years, fitness circles and making home videos that you can work out to and all that kind of stuff. Just one of those guys that's always in shape and has made it his life. And he, you know, he's just one of those, you, you have guys that are real kind of hardcore about that. And he was kind of a little more practical, which was why I always gravitate to him. But he had this saying, he would say, do your best and forget the rest. And he would say, just, just push play. Just put the DVD in and push play. Like, what he was saying was, look, I'm not going to come criticize every push-up you do or make sure you went, you know, your chin went over the bar on every pull-up or that you're actually lifting enough weight. He's like, just every day, just show up. If you show up every day and put the thing in the DVD player and hit play, you're going to be okay. And there's a message of consistency to that, I think, that's valuable that, hey, maybe I didn't do the best workout, but I did the best I can today, and I still did it. And I think there's a lot of value in that mindset, and I think that's what he's teaching here, is that stay on the road. This endurance, you got to stay on the path, and it takes some discipline to do that. And there's going to be days you don't feel like you got the good workout. There's going to be days you don't feel like you did your best, you, that you stumbled, that you didn't do what God wanted you to do, that you weren't the kind of Christian that you should be. That's okay. Put the DVD back in tomorrow and push play. Stay on the road. Get back on the path. Do what you need to be doing. Since it's not a sprint, we can get back in. You may have to work harder the next day, but you can do it. I think there's some days where you, where you feel like you ate the spiritual donut. You know, if you, if you ever try to diet plan, I don't know if you're like me. I, I quit. I used to drink a lot of sodas, a lot of sodas. When I started my first full-time job, we had a cafeteria, and you could go through, and, uh, and there was a fountain deal. And I would go th- every morning for, I, before I'd even go to my desk. I'd just go get a 32-ounce Coke, fill it up. It's sweet. You just swipe your badge. I just take it out of your paycheck. You don't even have to have money. Just sit there and fill it up all day, and I'm just drinking Cokes. Well, I'm 20. That doesn't affect me. All of a sudden, I'm 30, 10 years later, and it's like, hey, what's going on on the midsection? And I was addicted to those things, and I would try all the, all the different things you could do. Well, now I'll do them every other day. Like, yeah, that don't work great. Maybe I'll just do them on weekends. I'll just have sodas on weekends. It doesn't work because what happens is you, then you go drink the Coke the one time, and you're right back on it. So I just quit them cold turkey, and I haven't had one since 2015. I've, I'm always joking. I was like, I'm just going to take a sip. And Tara's like, don't do it, because if you do it, it's over. And she knows me, and she's right. And so I just stay away from it. But it's like that. Some days we feel like we, we eat the spiritual donut. And when that happens, we, we think we fall off the path. If we're doing a diet, and we think, okay, I'm, I'm, what, what's the Atkins? I'm doing Atkins, no carbs. Well, I ate the chips and hot sauce. So I run that, so I'm just, it's, I'm done. I'm just going back off. 
That's how we think about it. And I think we think about Christianity that way sometimes too. Well, today I messed up. I, I did something really stupid. So since I already did it, I'm just going to keep doing stupid stuff. How ludicrous does that sound? But that's exactly the way we behave. No, you did something stupid, get over it. Pray for forgiveness, make a correction in your life, and get back on the path. Endure, run an endurance race. Get back on the path. That's how the Christian life works. In verse number 24 here, when Paul says, do you not know that all runners run, but only one receives the prize? That's, that's kind of a weird statement, isn't it? Only one receives the prize. That makes it sound like he wants me to beat you. Run the race, but only one receives the prize, so Justin, you should focus on getting to heaven and them not. That's the way it kind of reads. It's kind of an odd statement. What's he talking about? I think he's talking about the competition with yourself. He's talking about the effort. He's talking about the effort. He's talking about how we run the race. In 2 Timothy, he's given Timothy a lot of instruction there on kind of staying the course as a worker in the faith. And in Chapter 2, verse number 1, he says, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust a faithful man who will be able to teach others also, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits. It's his aim is to please the one that enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crop. So he's talking a lot about effort here. Talking about doing it things the right way and making a good effort. A farmer does all this work. He should enjoy the first fruits of the crop. But he says the athlete isn't crowned if he doesn't compete according to the rules. That brings a lot of images to my mind. Think about the whole steroid era in baseball a few years back. I was a big baseball fan. They had that whole deal with steroids where everybody was hitting all those home runs and all the steroid stuff came out. And so then it's like, well, who was a who was now a steroid guy and who wasn't a steroid guy. So now people are having to make judgments. Do they think this, you know, some of them got caught to positive tests. That was easy. But then there's all the guys that are just, they just have suspicions of. So who's, oh, we think he used steroids so he can't be in the Hall of Fame. See, people don't like it. They don't like the cheating. People understand the framework that you got to compete according to the rules. It's not beating someone else, though. It's how you play the game. I almost said it's not whether you win or lose, but we, I argued the first 10 minutes of sermon that you've got to win, that you've got to obtain the prize. But it's not whether you win or lose against someone else. It's not beating someone else. It's not me beating down someone else. It's playing the game the right way. It's running the race with endurance. And I hope that's clear this morning. As we close, I want to read maybe the most well-known verse um, that's worded in this whole racing context. As Paul's nearing the end of his life, the same letter to Timothy, a few chapters later in chapter 4, as he's finishing out that letter, he says, I'm, ready to, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me, on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who loved his appearing. I think about people that run marathons. You see these marathons on TV from time to time. I've never run a marathon. Maybe some of you have. I don't know. I've known people that have run them. You see people that don't look like a typical running type, and they'll get the bug to run this marathon. And I think it sort of becomes like a test of will. 
you know, something that's a really difficult task and somebody at some point, I don't know if it's midlife crisis or what it is, but they get in their head that they're going to go run a marathon, 26.2 miles. And they start training for weeks and weeks out and there's all these training programs they can do and they get to where they're running where they can ultimately run 26.2 miles. Boston Marathon just finished a couple weeks ago. 30,000 people decided they needed to try this. And you have people in those races that are serious competitors, you know, you and I wouldn't have a chance of winning that because we're not from Kenya. You know, they, you got some of those people that are just ridiculously stupid athletes at how the good they are at this stuff. It's crazy. And you just, there's no prayer a guy like me can beat them. They just have, they have a certain physical makeup that allows them, they just take off and run. And they're going to win, you know, they're going to run this thing in two hours or whatever it is. But of the 30,000 people, I don't know what the percentage of truly competitive athletes versus average Joe's is, but I would guess it's 99% of it's just average people that said, hey, I want to do a hard task, and I'm going to commit to that for some period of time so that on this day I can run this race. And you see people do it, and they run these marathons, and they finish. I've never heard one single person that I know personally or interviewed on TV or any of that, not one time, it's an absolute, not one single time have I heard anybody say what place they finish in the marathon. I've never heard it. All they say is, I ran a marathon. You don't know if they were 29,999 out of 30,000, or you don't know if they were number two. They're just proud that they finished the marathon. And then they go to the gift shop and buy the little round sticker that says 26.2 and slap it on the back of the car. Or they go to the tattoo shop and get it put on their calf, 26.2. They're proud that they ran a marathon. And I think that's a really good metaphor for the Christian life. Because there's 30,000 other people that I'm running right along the side of, but I don't look to the left and right and think they're my competition. I look to the finish line and think, I just hope I make it. I don't know if I'm making it 26 miles. And if I do, I'm pretty happy. The eyes on the prize of heaven. And Paul said, I fought the fight. He didn't say, I beat out all these brothers and sisters. He said, I fought the fight. I finished the race. I kept the faith. So there's a crown for me. He got to walk back and slap the sticker on the back of the car. He knew it was there. He obtained the prize. I finished my course. I've kept the faith. And that's the godly competition that we're talking about. And I hope that studies benefited you this morning. If you're here today and you need help in any way, we want to offer an invitation. The race of life. It's a challenging, challenging race. It's a race of endurance. And if you're a member of the church, you understand that already probably. Hopefully you understand that you have help in that. We didn't talk a lot about that this morning because of the focus on the personal competition and accountability part of that, but that's what, that's what we're in this together for. We don't, we're not competing with each other. We're helping each other along. And the invitation this morning, if you need help in that, we want to help you with that. If, you're, if you've never become a Christian, it's a much more difficult race. As you look down the road at the prize of life, there's two versions of that. We talked about that this morning. It's heaven or hell, and it's cut and dry. We don't like to talk like that in our society. We don't like to talk in absolutes. We certainly don't like to talk in anything that's not touchy-feely, but that's the fact of the matter. And you have to decide if you want to run the race or not. Do you want to obtain the prize? It's a tough road. It's a race of endurance. But the reward is so worth it. Paul knew that at the end of his life. And if you need help this morning in any way, we ask you to come and have us sing this invitation song.